Well, good morning. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year in a couple days. It's good to be with you guys today. My name is Lee Taylor. I work with young adults here at Village 7, and it is a blessing and a privilege to get to be with you today. Mark was gracious enough to ask me to get to open up God's Word today. Today we're looking at John chapter 1, as we just read the latter part of that, and looking at John the Baptist. As many of you know, John the Baptist is a great pillar of the faith. He was a great and powerful leader, very inspirational, a lot of people following him early on here in the first century. And I've been thinking about a question with this text. And the question is, what do you think it is that makes a great leader great? What do you think it is about a leader that makes them great, a great leader great? We know that not all powerful leaders are great leaders. You can think about some powerful leaders throughout history that might come to mind. One would be Joseph Stalin, right? The tyrant over the Soviet Union. Some people think as many as 7 million people died under his terrifying reign. Far less wicked, we could think about someone like, like Thomas Jefferson. He's you know, a, a good and moral man by most respects, but how would he lead out, live out his ideals, his Christian virtues as he led the American people. Well, as many of you know, Thomas Jefferson literally took a razor blade to the Bible, cutting out certain controversial passages and kind of forming his own Bible, what he thought would be ideal for the American people. He wanted to form a civil religion, a civil religion of ethical principles that he thought would unify the American people. And what do you think drove Stalin and Jefferson to these kind of decisions and, and many of us to these kind of decisions to compromise and to, to use authority in, in negative ways? Well, I believe that Stalin and Jefferson and all of us are susceptible to being, become overwhelmed by skepticism. We can become overwhelmed by doubt and self-righteousness, and apathy. We get filled with pride and we do whatever seems right in our own eyes. And I think the people of God have done that throughout history. Well, I know that I'm susceptible to this and this has happened in my heart. I'm sure this has happened to you as well. But we do have some positive examples that we can look at throughout history. I've been reading the book Seven Men by Eric Metaxas, which he highlights seven great men throughout history. And he wants to highlight them for specific reasons. And if we had to boil it down to what, what do you think it is that made these seven men specifically great? Metaxas states that, it's their, that they were marked by service and sacrifice. They were marked by service and sacrifice. One of these that he highlights is George Washington. We all know George Washington on the $1 bill. Capital named after him, had the Washington Monument, wooden teeth, all that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> but he is positively highlighted by Metaxas and many other historians for one particular reason. After leading the militiamen of the American colonies to victory, over the greatest military force at the time, the British, Washington was offered to become, essentially to become King George I of America. King George III of England kind of presented this to him. 
And he turns that down in order to go back to farming in Virginia. Metaxas states it like this. Washington had made clear in the very first year of the conflict that he was determined not to win the war against King George III, only to set himself up as a rival American tyrant once he had won. See, he sacrificially laid aside the power and the prestige that was on his doorstep in service and in sacrifice for the American people. And like Washington, our text today shines a light on John the Baptist and how he laid aside the power and the prestige and the many, many followers that were following him in the first century in service and in sacrifice for the Christians in the church in the first century. And then most importantly, in service and in sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus himself says in Matthew eleven eleven that no one before or after will ever be greater than John the Baptist. How would you like that on your resume? <laughs> it's pretty amazing. He was literally the greatest of all time other than Jesus. <laughs> Some of you guys might know the Ackerman, the goat, right? The greatest of all time, G-O-A-T. <laughs> we think about that today. Some people refer to that if you're an NFL fan. You know, the greatest of all time in the quarterback position is Tom Brady, right? Some of you guys are like, no, <laughs> Bronco Nation out here. <laughs> but his talent and his credentials are undeniable. He is the greatest of all time. But, but John the Baptist is literally the greatest of all time other than Jesus. And what's John the Baptist all about? What is the greatest of all time all about? What is his message before we dive into our text, let's, let's just quickly look at the context for our passage. If you want to turn back open to John chapter 1. John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle, who is one of the twelve, is writing to a community of Jews and Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world about Jesus. This community had been increasingly influenced by Gnosticism, which was a rampant heresy in the early church that was highlighting the spiritual over the material. A sect of this Gnosticism was a group called the Docetists or Docetism. They believed that Jesus only had the appearance of a man. They kind of highlighted the spiritual over the material, that he only had the appearance of a man. He wasn't fully man. At the same time, Bruce Milne kind of shed some more light on the context he says, the early decades of the first century was a time of intense speculation about the Messiah. Some thought that he would bring peace. Others stressed righteousness. Due to the Roman occupation, many cast him a military role and saw him as leading the overthrow of the Roman yoke. And beyond that, securing the worldwide prominence of the Jewish nation. This kind of sets the table for John the, Baptist, John the Baptist and highlights why I wanted to, to look at this text today. Mark said I could preach on whatever I wanted to. And we're kind of in between series. We're coming out of Advent, out of talking about Jesus and the incarnation. And we're going into 2019. We're starting a new series. And, and the series is going to be focusing on, on kingdom center prayer. It's going to be a, a theme throughout all of 2019 here at Village 7. So kind of 
incarnation and the Advent season and going into a series and uh, an emphasis, church-wide emphasis on kingdom-centered prayer. And I thought that looking at John the Baptist, asserting that he is not the Christ, would be a great segue from Advent and into 2019 about kingdom-centered prayer. We know that John the Baptist at this time was beginning to gain all kinds of notoriety, right? People were beginning to wonder what this guy, John, was all about to, to help kind of explain the pulse of his popularity for us in 2018. John the Baptist was going viral. <laughs> he was trending. So what's the, all the fuss about this weird guy, John, from the wilderness who's baptizing people? We'll look down at our text in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. And so the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So what's this guy all about? They wanted to know what John the Baptist was all about. And investigating about John, they're, they were confronted with John's spotlight on Christ. Our three-year-old daughter, Becky and I's three-year-old daughter, Stevie Ray, has one of those Jesus Storybook Bibles by Sally Lloyd-Jones. If, if you have little kids, you need to go get one right now. Um, not during the service, but um, <laughs> you need to go get one if you don't have one. If you don't have any kids, you should get one anyways. It's amazing. Um, it's a beautiful uh, rendition of telling the story of God's people, the story of, of God and his redemption throughout all of history. And it's beautifully illustrated and, um, and I think that she does an amazing job actually kind of highlighting, what, about John, highlighting John the Baptist in his ministry. And there's some really cool illustrations. I think I got a few slides of these. Um, and this is how she puts it. She says, as John grew up, well, to tell you the truth, he was a bit unusual. He lived in the desert. He wore itchy, scratchy outfits made of camel hair. He had a big, big, bushy beard and long, long, scraggly hair. And here's the oddest thing of all. He only ate locusts, short for big, creepy, crunchy grasshoppers, which he dipped in honey to disguise the taste, probably. But God sent John to tell his people something important. Stop running away from God and run to him instead. You need to be rescued. I have good news. The rescuer is coming. Make your hearts ready for him. Yes, get ready because your king is coming back for you. Isn't that great? I loved getting to read that to my daughter and to, to learn about what John was all about. What John was all, what John was all about was Jesus. So if Jesus is the Christ and I want to follow him and you want to follow him, what do you think that looks like? What does that look like? Well, that's a great question. I'm really glad that you're thinking that through. Well, John the Baptist later states in John 3, verse 30, he says, I, or he says, Jesus must increase. He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase. You and I must decrease. Our life must say, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Let's even just can we try and say that together even. All right, ready? One, two, three. I am not the Christ. Doesn't that feel good? <laughs> How do we do that? 
I think there's two ways from our text that we can look at today that we can live, I am not the Christ. First, in verses 19 through 28, we must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. Have you ever been mistaken for somebody famous? <laughs> you have a celebrity lookalike out there? I'm not sure if any of you guys do, uh, but uh, there's been a few times in my life where people have thought that I looked like somebody famous and um, there was one occasion where someone came up to me and, and they thought that I looked like, they thought I, I don't know if they thought I was, or that I just looked like the actor Bradley Cooper. But I was like, all right, that's pretty, pretty good. He's a pretty good looking guy, right? <laughs> See, he can, not too bad. That is my wedding day picture. So that's like the best I've ever looked. <laughs> but, you know, at first it's kind of flattering, but then there's this kind of sad reality where I feel like I'm letting them down. You can kind of see their, their thought process like, oh, I thought that you were Bradley Cooper, but then I realized you're a lot less attractive and you're also buying diapers at King Supers. <laughs> like, I don't know where he was at that moment, but he probably wasn't doing that. A far less flattering comparison than I got once is that I looked like Robin Williams from Jumanji, which... <laughs> now you're like... How in the world did you ever look like that? Is there something we don't know? And maybe, uh, so I actually grew my beard pretty long a couple times. And, you know, I don't think I look as crazy as Robin Williams from Jumanji. But, you know, I did have a long beard several times throughout my life. But <laughs> a far more flattering comparisons were given to John in our text. But he did not own these comparisons. He did, not, he did not own up to what they were thinking, what they thought about him. Because true humility, what John shows us in this text, is that true humility is rooted in knowing who you are not and who you are. True humility is rooted in knowing who you are not and who you are. And John shows us that first, who we are not. John, this says who he's not. This is who we are not. When the priests and Levites approach John the Baptist about who he might be, he humbly responds with three profound confessions. Look at the text, verse 20 and 21. He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. So what were they thinking about? First with, I am not the Christ. What were they, who were they thinking he might be? What did they mean by that? What were they expecting? He's saying, I'm not the Christ. The Christ being the promised Messiah who's going to save God's people, overthrow the government and usher in the kingdom of God. He says, I'm not gonna save people from their sins. He says, I'm not the Christ. Do you believe that today, brothers and sisters, Village 7? I know if you were to take a test and you were to have to answer that, you would probably get it right. Check, I'm not the Christ. <laughs> but we live differently sometimes, don't we? Sometimes we think that we have all the answers all the grand insight and wisdom. We think we can fix people's problems. I know if I was to honestly expose my heart 
my sin and brokenness at times, you would be able to see that I just really think that I can figure people's problems out for them. Maybe even to the extent that I can really turn their life around. We have to be able to proclaim with John the Baptist that I am not the Christ because we all have a tendency to have a savior complex. He says, I am not the Christ. May we be able to proclaim with Paul in Galatians 6.14. He says, far be it for me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not the Christ. He humbles himself. Okay, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? The great prophet who saw the prophets of Baal defeated. You know, he's taken up into heaven and we know from Malachi chapter four, verse five, that in some way, Elijah was anticipated as coming back again. And so maybe they're thinking, maybe this guy who's baptizing people, this great leader, this great teacher, maybe he, maybe this is Elijah. He says, I'm not Elijah. He humbles himself. Okay, are you, are you the prophet? What are, what are they thinking about that? What is the prophet? What does that even mean? Well, they may be thinking about Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18, where it says there, there will be a prophet like Moses with the words of God in his mouth. And in many ways, John the Baptist actually fits this description. But he says, I'm not the prophet. He humbles himself. Look at verse 27. He says, not only am I none of those, but the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Again, Bruce Milne st states that it is noteworthy that the one specified limitation on the service of slaves was the removal of the master's shoes. Do you want to know what John's humility looked like? A humility that you and I should learn from? He says that I'm not the Christ. He says that I'm not Elijah. He says I'm not the prophet. He says I'm not even worthy of being Jesus' slave. True humility is rooted in knowing who you are not and who you are. John knew that, and he knew that he was not even worthy of being Jesus' slave. So if that is what John is saying, he's not these things, who is he and who are we? Well, if you've read through John 1, you've already heard it. John the Baptist is described more often as a witness than he is John the Baptist. John the witness is honestly a more fitting name. Look at verse 6. We can, this is not our text, but we kind of look at what's leading up to this in verse 6 and 7 and 8. John came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. He says, I'm a witness. And what is a witness? A witness chiefly testifies to what they have seen and what they know to be true. A witness chiefly testifies to what they have seen and what they know to be true. 
What person in your life knows you better than anybody else? <laughs> you might be sitting next to them right now. <laughs> Maybe it's a spouse or a friend or family member. I want you to think about that person for a second. If you were to ask that person a question and they had to answer honestly, <laughs> and you were to say, what, do, what or who do I bear witness about more than anything else? What or who do I bear witness about more than anything else? Some of you are like, I don't like that question, Lee. <laughs> I don't want to answer that. And I don't want someone to answer that for me. But I want us to think about that. Because we know from the text, John says that he was not the light, but he came, he came to bear witness about the light. He says, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. So he says that I'm a witness. Secondly, in verse 23, he says that he is a voice. What is a voice? Well, as a voice, you you won't really be able to pin anything to his name, to his character, to his reputation, to his talents or abilities or his righteousness. He's just a voice. It's there and then it's gone. And we know that in the first century, you can't even record a voice, right? Like we can today. You know, think of the choir that we have. As a choir, unless there's a solo, you can't even really pick out a single person. It's just one sound. He says, I'm a voice. That's all we are as well. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, and says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So people knew about this voice. They, they were probably thinking about that, that the, the voice was going to be integral in highlighting the Messiah and ushering in the kingdom of God. He says he's a voice. So John the Baptist, he he reminds us that we must humble ourselves. And then secondly, in verses 29 through 34, we must point to Christ. We point to Christ. We point to Christ as in verse 29. And he says his message and our message is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What do you think it sounded like when he said that? For some reason, I don't think it was all proper and royal, like some James Earl Jones, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> I don't think it was like that for some reason. You know what I think about? I think about my, my three-year-old Stevie Ray. When, when I come home after a long day and open up the door and she hears it and she comes running over and she'll just scream, my daddy's home. <laughs> That's what I think about. When I think about John the Baptist, I think, behold, the Lamb of God who's taking away the sins of the world. This will be the message that we proclaim as witnesses and as voices wherever God has placed us. People cannot place their hope and their security in us. You and I are unable to bear that load but Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What do you think it means that Jesus is the Lamb of God? 
What does that mean? What are some of the, the pictures that might come to mind? What is, what's some of the scripture that comes to mind when we think about Jesus being the Lamb of God? Well, I'm sure many of John's audience and, and many of you sitting in the room today be thinking about some of these passages. Maybe you think about the Lamb of Isaiah 53 who was led to the slaughter for the sins of God's people. Maybe you think about the ram provided for Abraham in Genesis 22. Maybe you think about the Passover lamb of Exodus 12 or the bulls and the goats that were sacrificed on the day of atonement described in Leviticus 16. In all of these examples, God provides. God provides. In fact, and in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac, one of the names of God we get from that passage, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. In John chapter one, John the Baptist is saying that Jesus is the lamb of God, provided by God to atone for the sins of his people. John's pointing to Christ. People are looking at John and he's pointing to Christ. They're looking to him for their hope, for the answers, for security. And he's redirecting their attention and pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They're saying, John, you baptize with water. He says, I baptize with water, but there's one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Saying, I can encourage you, I can build you up, I can, I can challenge you, I can teach, I can baptize you, but there's only one who can actually change your heart. John was pointing to Christ. What or who are you pointing to? John points to Christ, and we must point to Christ because Christ has died for our sin. He's died for our shame. He's died for our guilt. The author of Hebrews reminds us that for those who are in Christ, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. We can and we must affirm that we are not the Christ, but we must point to Christ because there is only one who can take away the sin and the shame and the guilt. And I know that for some of you in this room, you don't believe that God can do that. You don't believe that God can take away your sin and your shame and your guilt. Will you just look up here for a second? God wants to lavish. He wants to lavish the grace of the gospel upon you. He wants to lavish his grace upon you. But that grace is not cheap. It's costly, as Bonhoeffer rightly describes. But it's not costly to you. It's costly to the Father and to his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins on Calvary's cross. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? John knew this and he lived, I am not the Christ, in humbling himself and in pointing to Christ. Where are you at today? Let me give you one major application that we can take from this text and in living out that I am not the Christ. 
is that the grace of the gospel must drive us to our knees in prayer. It must drive us to our knees in prayer. I've already mentioned this already, but I'm just gonna say it again, that will you join with us at Village 7 as we humble ourselves and we point to Christ and in 2019 having a a church-wide focus on kingdom-centered prayer. Will you join with us in that? This is not just the 2019, like we're not gonna focus on that in 2020, (laughs) but we want to be able to to launch us into the, to refocus, to realign our hearts on kingdom-centered prayer. You say, well, what does that look like? What does it even mean? You guys have been talking about kingdom-centered prayer here for a while now. I don't really know what that looks like. Well, God is making all things new and his kingdom has come and Jesus is going to come again to restore what is broken. So we're gonna pray for the restoration of Colorado Springs. We want to pray that God would be pleased to feed the hungry. We wanna pray that God would shelter the homeless. We wanna pray that God would provide jobs for the unemployed. Most importantly, that God would turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. That's why we partner with places like with Springs Rescue Mission and, and Mercy's Gate because we want to be able to meet physical needs and, and, and interact in the city and be a part of what God is doing here in Colorado Springs. And we know that Jesus met physical needs, but he always met physical needs in, in order to get to the most important need, which is our spiritual needs, right? He says, I want to change your heart. If there's anything, if there's anything that proclaims, I am not the Christ, it is prayer. We're pleading with the Lord to move and act because we can't do it on our own. So we must humble ourselves and we must point to Christ. And kingdom-centered prayer might be one of the key ingredients in the whole process. So will you join with us in 2019 as we seek the Lord with kingdom-centered prayer? We are not the Christ, but like John the Baptist, let us proclaim that we might be witnesses and we might be voices wherever God has placed us. We're in the time of year where people begin to make New Year's resolutions. I know that's many out there that probably already have your gym memberships purchased. 2019 is the year. (laughs) When we begin to think about controlling different aspects of our life. We want to control our diets. We want to control our money, our jobs. We want to have the courage to to say things to certain people that we haven't had the courage to say before. As we're about to go into 2019, may the people of Village 7 be able to proclaim with John the Baptist that we are going to be witnesses and we are going to be voices for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be voices in Colorado Springs. May we be voices in our neighborhoods. May we be voices in our jobs. May we be voices in the relationships that God has placed us in. May we be voices in the armed forces. May we be voices in the mountains when we recreate and the beautiful creation that God has given us. May we be voices in the broken relationships and the broken situations that God has put us in. We will be voices in great anticipation because as we heard earlier in the Jesus Storybook Bible, we're gonna get ready 
because our king is coming back for us.